The God question for today is not what it was last week. Last week, I was going to speak on uh, if God is good, then what about all the pain and suffering in the world? And I thought about because, you know, we missed church last Sunday, why not just let it ride and go to today uh, and speak that word today? But I had a different uh, uh, message for today that I think is important. And also, I've spoken twice on that subject about pain and suffering in the past. You can look it up, you can listen to it, and I will speak on it probably sometime soon in the future as well. So I want to get to the message that we're going to talk about today. And before we get right into it, I want to bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as Lisa was saying earlier, your, your word tells us that where two or three of your people are gathered together in your name, you promise to be right here among us. So Lord, we don't even have to invite your presence here. You are already here. But Lord, what we do need is we need the filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need the unction. We need that the move in our hearts to be able to focus on what you're saying to each one of us and what you want us to know to learn, to think about, to interpret, and to put into practice, God, because you want us to be different when we walk out of here today. You want us to be more like your son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you'll give me the unction of your Holy Spirit and fill me with clarity and vision and purpose so that I can speak words of, uh, that are from you, that are words of life, and help us to have ears to hear, to hear what you're saying to us. God, we love you, and we give this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's good to see all of you guys here, back, smiling faces, uh, after a whirlwind of a week. We know it was difficult. It was challenging. So many of us had to evacuate. We've talked about that. Praise God that we're now back in our homes, and that 99.9% .9 of us are back in our homes. And praise God there were no lost lives. Praise God that there was good evacuations. They were orderly that we had good information. We knew when it was okay to come back home. I knew that I'm coming home back here Wednesday because I believe that somehow that this area is gonna be opened up again, and it was, that our homes where we live in Northwest Santa Rosa was opened up again. And then coming into the church, it was really strange because I, I got here about 12.30 on Wednesday, and I'm thinking, okay, church is going to be dark, going to be no power, but it's okay. I'll just get in and we'll figure out what we can do. I have battery power on my laptop, so I'm good. And uh, I couldn't get in <laughs> because the new doors, uh, my old key doesn't work on the new doors. So uh, Don Berman's there and, and he says, well, maybe you can try the other door upstairs. And so I did and I went around and wouldn't you know it, there's a door on the far right side, one of the old doors. Uh, the, whose lock fit my key, my old key. So it was pretty awesome. Come back into the church and, we, and find out that about 10 or 15 minutes later, I'm letting Chloe get some lunch. Uh, she was here. She's part of our Barnabas ministry. And she opens up the fridge and the light is on in the fridge. Yeah, isn't that something? And I'm thinking like, what does this mean? You know, your brain's like processing. We're in a power outage, and yet she's got a light on in the fridge. How does that work? And the power just came back on right then and there. Praise God. We're back in. You guys went home, and usually for most of you, by Thursday night or Friday, you're back with the power on. So thank God for that. Um, it's something to not take for granted and to remember all of our blessings, to count them one by one, right? So we're here today as God's people gathered together because we believe as Christ followers that Jesus has the fullest answers to life's 
deepest questions. And that learning to live for him on all the questions that we have in life, God, how, how did we even get here? What is important in life? How should I live? What happens when we die? Is there any meaning to this planet that's revolving around the sun? You know, and here we are living. We live for a while on this planet, and physically we die, and then what happens? And, and Jesus, do you have anything to say about all this? Can you point us in the right direction, show us the way to live? So we, we believe that following Jesus is the best way to live, and it's the only way to die. So let's see what Jesus has to say about this issue of money in the church, because... Uh, I know that in the church, one of the God questions that comes up is uh, there are a lot of people that feel really wary about the church, and they always think the church, they looked on them skeptically, they look on the church with even some contempt, and it says, well, I'm not going to go to church, because what? All they want from me is my money, right? All they want from me is my money, and uh, in some cases, there's probably evidence for that, but in many cases, they're not. And, and I'm really blessed to be pastor of this church for almost three years now because I know where the money goes in this church. And I know how it's collected, and I know how it's deposited, and I know how it's spent. And it's very timely that we're doing nominations starting today for church officers, for elders and board members and deacons and deaconesses, because those leaders are some of the people who help manage the money. In fact... Every December, there's a congregational meeting, and you all who are members here, you get to vote whether or not we're going to approve this annual budget of how we believe that God is going to bring in our annual offerings and how those offerings, those gifts from God's people are going to be spent. And I can tell you that knowing what I know, that it's being done with integrity and honesty and uprightness, and you can trust the way your money is being spent in this church. So I feel confident with that. But I know that there are a lot of people who don't feel very confident with that. So I was trying to think of a funny way, a slightly humorous way to start the message. Uh, Jim Tistammer, he always says, hey, just start the message with a joke and we'll all be good. So I'm going to start with this one. I heard this one 35 years ago when I was a young Christian. I was about six. Now that's not true. But I was in college, and uh, I heard this joke from this pastor who had come from the Midwest. And it's funny when you're out in California in the 80s, and this guy is in his 60s, and he's telling you stories about Midwestern farmers sitting across the fence from each other. And it's just like, it's like you're in a cultural time warp or something. But this was a pretty good one. It says, uh, there was a rural church in the Midwest years ago, and a farmer comes in with his overalls, and he sticks his his thumbs under his, over, his overalls, and he walks into the front door of the church office, and he looks at the church secretary there, and he says, I want to talk to the head hog at the trough. The head hog at the trough. And the church secretary looked at him and said, Sir, I'm not sure what you mean by that. And he says, I want to talk to the head hog at the trough. And she said, Sir, if you are referring to our senior pastor, I think that's pretty offensive, and I don't think that's a very respectful way to refer to him. Is that who you're talking about? And he says, I want to talk to the head hog at the trough. I got a $10,000 check, and I want to talk to the head hog at the trough. And she says, Well, why didn't you say so? I'll go get the big pig right now. <laughs> Money's a delicate issue. 
when it comes to church. Carrie Newhoff is a pastor and an author. He's somebody I've followed for the past five years. He's a pastor in Toronto area in Canada. Don't hold that against him. He spends most of his time here in America. But anyway, Carrie Newhoff, he says that when it comes to money and giving financially to churches, it's inevitable that the church is going to run into problems. I mean, the church has run into problems since it began. The, the church, the kingdom of God, was began to be announced by John the Baptist in the first century, right? Out there in the wilderness of Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what happened to John the Baptist? Did he get a nice reception? By some, but certainly not by the leaders, and he ended up losing his head. Uh, there was the apostle John. There was Jesus and the apostles. And most of them, save the Apostle John were killed for their faith in the first century, even though they had nothing but love, they had nothing but integrity and honesty, and they were sharing with the rest of the world what God had done in their lives and what they'd experienced from Jesus. And yet they were rejected. Their message was rejected. So the church is always going to have difficulty in some way, shape, or form. However, when it comes to money, there are times when we in the church at large, when we deserve the criticism that comes our way. Money can be a sensitive topic for people. You know, what do they say? There's like two or three things you never talk about, right? Sex, politics, and money. Is that it? Sex, politics, and money, and not in that order? I don't know any Gen Xers or any millennials that have that restriction. Maybe it's just our generation. But anyway, uh, it's one of those topics that people don't like to be brought up, don't like to be talked about. People are always wary. I know I am. Maybe you are too. We're wary of being manipulated, of being pushed in a certain direction we don't want to go. We're, we're wary of being conned by other people that are trying to get our money. Uh, many have turned away from the Christian faith because certain religious leaders have attitudes toward money that are not very biblical, not very Jesus-like. A few of them have had personal experiences in church due to money issues, and it's not uncommon. In fact, it's not uncommon to hear some comments like, next slide, please. Here it is. Uh, somebody will say, I don't go to church because when I do, they want me to empty my pockets. They make me feel guilty if I don't donate. Another person would say, for once, I'd like to see a church where they didn't ask for my money as soon as I walk in the door. Another person, why do churches keep asking for money all the time? Frankly, it turns me off, and I think it turns off a lot of other people too. Man, I didn't even get an amen. I thought somebody would say amen. Uh, and then it's just one church scandal after the other. And if it's not a church scandal about sex, then it's a church scandal about money. Now, I did a little search yesterday uh, trying to come up, see if there were any are there any modern examples of uh, how the church has abused money? Well, lo and behold, this week, and nowhere, uh, nowhere but the Vatican, which is the seat of the Roman Catholic Church, there's two financial scandals going on right now. One of them involves a $250 million slush fund. I'm not sure where the Vatican gets $250 million to slush around. But they had it, and there was some investment going on in these London apartments, and people in the church were skimming money left and right, and, there was a, and it's a big scandal going on right now in the Vatican. Another scandal in the Vatican has to do with some Angolan oil field investment. 
So whenever there's all this amount of money and the church has all this money and there's one big project, it just seems like who, nobody's watching the details. Nobody's counting the nickels and the dimes and the quarters and seeing where all the money's going. So there's two scandals going on over in the Catholic side of the church. On the Protestant side, uh, the latest is uh, Kenneth Copeland, who's a television evangelist, and he's one of those health and wealth and prosperity gospel preachers. He believes, like, if you put money in the offering, that God is now, by the laws of sowing and reaping, that God is now obligated to put even more money back into your pocket because you gave money to him. I remember going to a church in the 90s in Washington, D.C. as part of this Promise Keepers rally that was called a prayer and fasting in the nation's capital. And we were all supposed to go to a church of a different race. So we went to this African-American church, my buddy and I from our church in Sacramento. And we're in this church, and they took two offerings. They took one offering, which was the regular offering for the church, and then they took this offering that was like this, it was called the seed offering. And the pastor, he, you know, he had some money, and so he took out a bill, and that's all I got once. Anyway, <laughs> I'll have a five. <laughs> It'll look a little better, but he had a, he had a 20 in his hand. So he, so he had a 20, and he says, now, brothers and sisters, I want you to take this money, and I want you to put it in the offering, and I want you to, to call it your seed money, because this is your investment in the kingdom of God. And when you invest this money in the kingdom of God, it's going to come back to you more than what you put in. Amen? And everybody said amen, and they had a, they had a second offering, which was a seed offering. I didn't put any in, into the offering, by the way. I didn't really believe in what they were doing. But because I thought it was like, I, I, I don't think that's the, the right biblical way to view money and to view giving. But I know that there's that side out of there. And Kenneth Copeland is on Inside Edition. And in a fiery, angry way, which if you know Kenneth Copeland, he can, like, takes him three seconds to get there. Uh, he can defend himself and angrily tell the interviewer why he owned three corporate jets so that he could get around the rest of the world to be able to preach the gospel. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm not sure that's the best use of God's money. So it's fair, what I think it's fair to say, you can always find some examples of financial scandal that's going on in the church. I mean, in a, church, in a world of two billion people and hundreds of thousands of churches, there, there's bound to be a few bad apples in the bunch. But I, I think it is fair to say that most Christian groups, most local churches, they're not trying to bilk innocent people. No one would deny that it's important to keep God's standards when it comes to money and giving. I don't think most churches are trying to exploit innocent people, even though there's a few bad apples out there. I think it's also true with slide number four that whether or not a church asks for money or financial gifts or offerings, I've heard of a church in the area, they don't collect a public offering anymore in the church. They put boxes in the back and they say, your offering, your gift to God can go here. And as the people are leaving, they can do it that way. Uh, that's one way to do it. Uh, but what I want to say is the reality is whatever the local church or organization is, no local church can operate without money. It's just, it's just a reality. You have programming. We have the staff. We have our missionaries. The 17, 18% of our offerings go to support our missionaries, uh, whether they're overseas or local. We have our local ministries that we support, like Bridges, 
Uh, we have curriculum and printing that we do here all the time. We have these little posters and signs we make. We have decorations that we do for the changes in the holidays. I assume somebody bought those pumpkins somewhere. Um, we have, so we have that. Then we have the PG&E bill, which is probably going to get bigger. We have the water, the gas bill. And I put this in faith on Thursday when I wrote this uh, PowerPoint illustration. But I said, we even have to pay for the donuts and coffee. But I know, Jim, did you get a real donut today in church? You, yes, yeah, somewhat, right? Because I go at 7, about 7.25, I walk into Safeway down in downtown Sebastopol every time, and I pick up the donuts for the church. Well, I go to pick up the donuts, and the lady's there, and she's super apologetic, and she says, Ah, oh, Pastor, I'm so sorry. We don't have any donuts today. And I'm looking at her like, what? <laughs> like, this is not happening. We didn't even have church last week, and now you're going to tell me there's no donuts this week. We're going to lose membership. You know, they're going to leave. They're going to go, oh, I'm going to where there's donuts. So anyway, but they had donut holes, and I, I, to her credit, she was super nice. We forgot to call you and tell you, so please take these donut holes, take these extra uh, pastries and stuff, take as many as you want, and we're not charging you for them. And I was just like, hello. So, so that particular one is not true, but we did have to buy the coffee. So anyway, the point is no church can operate without money. Christ followers who belong to and support their local church, they don't need to be endlessly prodded to give financially, and they should never, never be manipulated. Church leaders who use financial gifts to buy jets or have exorbitant expense accounts, they are responsible for these scandals, and they are the ones that put the skepticism and the doubt in the hearts of God's people. Um, the, the promising somehow, hey, if you give this much, God is going to give you back even more. Uh, here's the point. You can't, I don't know how they do it, but you cannot promise something that God himself never promised in his word right? If you're going to be a church of the Bible, a church of the scriptures where we are, we say the highest authority for our faith and practice is the Bible, the old, the Hebrew scriptures in the old, and the Christian scriptures in the New Testament. That's our highest rule of faith and authority. We have to go for what the Bible says. We can't promise something that it doesn't actually say. Now, having said that about scandals in the church and you can't manipulate God's people, all of that is wrong. I do believe this, that it is appropriate for God's people to give to God's work. It's one way we can all work together. In fact, it's a way we can all participate in the growing and the advancing of the kingdom of God. And it's true for you no matter what the size of your gift is, right? Because God set up giving. This is the beauty of the way God set up giving. The rich don't have any advantage over the poor, right? The way God set up giving is it's to be proportional. It's to be in keeping with your income. So whether you put a dollar in or whether you put a thousand dollars in on that particular offering, it's in proportion to your income and God says that's the way he wants it done to support the work of God. Now, one of the reasons why I know that the rich have no advantage over the poor was do you remember... The story about Jesus when he's in the temple area, he, this is the last week of his life. He's just come down on a donkey down the Mount of Olives, and he rides into Jerusalem, 
and he goes into the temple and he clears it from all the money changers and he says, my house, my house, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of thieves, clears out all the money changers and everybody just goes, wow, Jesus, man, what are you doing? Um, so the next scene is Jesus is now in the temple area and according to commentaries, he's actually in the court of women which I think God and God's people were really smart for doing this because he's in the area of the temple where, they're put, where the people come by and they put their offerings, right? So they didn't have a big church service in the middle of the courtyard of the temple and say, okay, everybody, pass the plate. We're going to take the offering. All the Jewish people who were giving to God and to God's work would put their money into these offering boxes in the court of the women and the Gentile. And there were boxes for your temple tax and there were boxes for a free will offering. Well, Jesus is watching this parade go by, and a bunch of well-to-do uh, Jewish people are walking by, and they're putting in pretty large, large amounts of money. And I remember Jesus says, you know, don't trumpet what you're doing for God to tell everybody what a great person you are. You don't have to virtue signal. Yeah, you don't have to um, uh, have somebody blow the trumpet while you put the offering in so everybody knows, you know, oh, oh, oh look at the amount of money this person gave. You know, let your, let your praying, your fasting, your giving be done in secret. Uh, Jesus makes that very clear. But Jesus sees a woman give an offering, and he points out this woman is a hero in the faith. Why? Well, it didn't look like she gave very much. She was an elderly widow, and she walks up to the offering, and she takes two of the smallest Hebrew coins, and she puts it in the free will offering. And Jesus says, do you see what that woman did? He said, everybody else who came up here to the offering, they put their money in the offering out of their excess, out of their extra, their surplus. This woman came and gave only two coins, but she gave everything she had to live on. And so Jesus saw the love and the sacrifice of that woman, and he pointed out that she gave more than all the rest. So do you see the way God's economy works? It's not based on how much you put in the offering. It's not based on how much money you have to give. It's based on your heart. Um, and by the way, where does the ability to make money, whether you make a little bit of money or whether you make a lot of money, where does the ability to even make money come from? Uh, Moses is writing the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, this is the fifth book in the Hebrew Scriptures, and this is the point where God's people are on the east side of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to cross west over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And Moses says, hey, before you go, before you come and occupy what somebody else built, you didn't build it, and what you're going to occupy based upon a promise God made, not, made to you, but you didn't you know, earn the promise. God promised it to your patriarchal forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying this land is going to belong to your descendants after they spend 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And all of that came to pass, just like God said it would. And now they're getting ready to cross in the promised land, and Moses says to them, he said, he's reminding God's people, and he's saying, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, right? And, and I can remember feeling that way. You get a paycheck. I remember when I got my first paycheck, I was 16 years old. I was making a whopping $2.85 an hour, busting tables and washing dishes at Izzy's Cafe, 16 years old. But when I got that paycheck, I'm like, I'm rich, you know? But if somebody had to say, hey, you need to give some of that money to God as an unbelieving, uh, non uh, uh, 
committed to Jesus person at 16 years old, I'd be like, what you talking about, Willis? I'm not going to give my money to that. I don't know. I've worked hard for my money. Just like that woman in the disco song says, she works hard for the money. You know, you work hard for the money. It belongs to you, right? And he says, you may say that, but you need to remember something about you and God. You are the creation. God is the creator. So whatever you have, even the abilities you have, you, didn't, it, you are not the source of it. The source of every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from God. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. I want to jump down to uh, the two great chapters in the, in the New Testament. Two of the great chapters that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Corinth about giving, because there's not a whole lot of, that is written specifically about giving when it comes to how does a local church handle giving? What, what are they supposed to do? Well, Corinthians gives us a little insight on that, but this is what the Apostle Paul says. So the church in Corinth, Paul, who's the apostle to the Gentiles, he's trying to show the world, look, in Christ, Jews and Gentiles normally would just hate each other. In fact, that was the deal in the first century, right? A Jewish man could pray, God, I thank you that you didn't create me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Seriously, first century male Jewish prayer, right? And yet, so God says, or the Jewish man would say, thank God I'm not a Gentile. The Gentiles would say, well, thank God I'm not a Jew, because most of them hated the Jews too. So the Jews and the Gentiles didn't get along, but under the umbrella of Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he's creating one new race of people. And what, what bonds us all together in this new race of people is our common faith in Jesus Christ. It's not the color of our skin. It's not our gender. It's not our economic status. It's not our language. It's the fact that we all embrace Christ as our Savior because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So Paul is trying to show the unity of the church, and he says, I know no better way to do that than collect an offering from these Gentile churches in Christ and bring it to these Hebrew background churches in Christ to say, these guys are your brothers. They love you. They care about you. They're giving you an offering because you're persecuted, and many of you can't even get a job in Judea because you're being persecuted by the Jews. So all of that is background to this verse right here. And Paul says, I'm going to send somebody ahead. I'm, he's up in northern Greece. He's writing to this church in southern Greece. And he says, I'm going to send some brothers on ahead to make sure that the promise that you made, we're going to give a generous gift for this offering to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem, that you're going to make good on it. And he says, but since you excel in everything, you excel in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and the love we have kindled in you. See also that you excel in this grace of giving. Right? So... Uh, if a church is going to be a real strong church, it's going to excel in a number of different things. But one of the things a good church has to excel in is in this grace of giving. And I think Paul even says the grace of giving because in the natural flesh, I'm not going to give something of myself for somebody else if I don't really care about anybody else but myself. And so when we receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we realize I have salvation. I have new life in Christ not because I earned it, but because Jesus gave it to me as a free gift. And he says, freely, freely you have received, now freely give. And so I care about 
God's causes around the world because Jesus took the time to care enough for me, and I'm going to pay it forward. I'm going to pass it on. I'm going to be blessed by him to be a blessing to others. So Paul goes on in, in 2 Corinthians 9 now, and this is this long passage, which I, if you can read that, awesome, because I can read it, but only because it's far away. But I got Chris, Chris White and I are the opposite. He, like, he sees really good close-up, and I see terrible close-up. So, but I can read that. What I want, it, Paul, so Paul's saying here, now, I got to set this up too. Paul says, the, here's the attitude. Not just that there's going to be an offering collected, but I want you to have the right attitude. So when you give, when you give, have the right attitude. So I want it to be a willing gift, he says, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the farmer who plants generously will get a generous crop. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. The more you plant, the more you can expect to harvest. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. Don't give reluctantly or in, in response to pressure. In other words, don't get manipulated into giving. Don't get cajoled into giving with promises that aren't really promises from God, right? For God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need, and then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So in other words, as I'm receiving this blessing from God, I am blessed to give a blessing to other people, so I give financially to God's work, and God sees that, and he says, you really are, you know, freely you have received, freely you give, you're, you, you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, so God sends more blessing my way, but he doesn't send more, he doesn't send more blessing my way for me to hoard it, he sends it so that that cycle of giving and receiving and giving and receiving and being blessed so that we can be a blessing to others, so that cycle just keeps on going until you and I take our last breath. That's what God is really intending. Even Jesus said that, uh, Paul quotes Jesus as he's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and he says, for even the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, so what do you see from this passage in 2 Corinthians 9? This is slide number 9. God even clarifies what to give back to him and how to give it to him. So number one, God wants your gift to be given willingly and cheerfully. That's right. So no manipulation, no guilt, no condemnation. Like if you don't, no sour looks from somebody when they pass by the offering plate. And then Paul says, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So if you're going to sow generously, if you're going to give generously, God will give you back generously, not to hoard it, but so you can keep on giving. So there's this great analogy of this law of, of sowing or planting and harvesting. Right? You, and it's your choice. You decide how much you're going to give. Now, John Wesley, I love this guy. John Wesley founded the church that I grew up in, the Methodist churches, right? And he's in the 1700s and he's preaching. He travels 80,000 miles in his lifetime on horseback. They said that he could fall asleep and take a nap on a horse going from town to town because he would preach three or four times a day. Thousands of sermons. He founded the Methodist movement. He's a great Christian leader. John Wesley said this about money and about how to live your life. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all times that you can, do good to all the people you can, as long as you can. 
Now, I read that, and I said, that guy had a can-do spirit, huh? Can-do spirit, right? Oh, come on. You, I, I expected a groan or something out of that. I can't, can't. Wow, if you have to explain it. All right. So anyway, there's one other example I want to give you, and then I want to close with a story because I want to get to, I want to show you this church that's just hitting it out of the park uh, as far as their generosity and giving. So we jump over to 1 Corinthians 16. This is the only passage where we're taught in a local church on a Sunday morning, how are you supposed to handle giving, right? Exactly how to do it. So Paul says it this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, he says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. He says, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. You're saving it up so you can get ready to give during the offering, during when the God's people to gather together at the church. And why did they do it that way? Be, well, they didn't have the advantages of online or modern giving like they do now. So if there was any giving that was going to be done, it had to be in person when God's people were gathered together. And there's some, there, there's some principles about there. First, it's, it's on the first day of the week. It's on the Lord's Day Sunday. It, the offering is to be set aside ahead of time. So each church member figures out, okay, this is how much I'm taking in. This is how much I want to give to God. Uh, they've planned and consider it before the offering plate comes around, right? So it's not while Lisa is praying for the offering that you're figuring out, say, hmm, now what am I going to do this week, right? Um, I, I often find it uh, uh, awkward. One of the, uh, uh, for me on Sunday morning, one of the most awkward times in the service is right during the offering time. And it's not that I have no, it's not because I have no offering to give or I'm refusing to give an offering. But uh, there's four of the ushers, and they're all here, and you know who you are. And you know, you know the look that you give me sometimes just out of whatever reason. But it's kind of funny because when they're praying for the offering and then they come by, guess who the per first person the usher passes by with the offering plate? So they're passing by the plate, and I've got my, my hands buried in my sermon notes, and I'm looking away, and they're like, and it's, they're like slowing down. Nothing today? Nothing? Okay, fine. And they just walk on. And I'm going like, I need to explain this, but that, there's no point. Well, the reason that I'm not emptying my pockets or whatever into the offering plate, it's, it's not because I'm not doing an offering. It's just that Lisa and I have chosen to do our giving electronically because in our church, we have this program called Push Pay. It's on the back of your bulletin. You can learn how to use it. You text this number, and they give you this, this link to Push Pay. You can, give, you can give to the church on a Tuesday night at 1 in the morning if you want to do that. Because you can do it through Push Pay. You can do it whenever the Holy Spirit prompts you to give. Now, the usual prompting for me to give is the day of or the day right after payday, right? And so you give an offering in on Push Pay. And then it says, blink, thanks so much. You know, your gift to Sebastopol Christian Church is all done. It's all squared away. And they take it right out of your bank account. So that's the way that we choose to give electronically. But it's, it's always that weird feeling that this guy comes by. Come on, man. And you're like, oh, I got nothing. I already gave. But you don't want to, you, you just can't say that in the middle of the church service. So there's my confession of the awkward moment. But that's the point. Uh, I'm giving, you can give to God in a number of different ways, but the point is God says, make it on the first day of the week. Let your offering be set aside ahead of time. Let it be in keeping with your income. 
This is the beauty of the giving. That's why Jesus said that poor widow who gave two coins gave more than anybody because it was in keeping with her income. It was proportional to her income. So whether you're rich or whether you're middle class or poor, it doesn't matter because your giving is based upon what you do have. Your giving's not based upon what you don't have. And nobody's going to make you feel guilty for that or they shouldn't. That's just wrong. So you're giving because you're, gi you're giving to God because God has already given to you. You're giving back to him what he's already given to you. And all those abilities and resources you have, they come from him. Now, I want to say this. I was blown away. I found this church, and it's not even a church in the United States. It's this group of churches and this ethnic group of people. They live on the other side of planet Earth. They live in northeastern India, they're the Mizoram people, and this church is hitting it out of the park when it comes to generosity, and I want you to see the video, so let's watch. There are many ways of serving the Lord. Some people do great things. Some people are good preachers. Some people contribute lots and lots of money. But when we talk about this handful of rice, it is very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen that nobody sees. But God knows. God bless. Every day, simple women in the state of Mizoram in northeast India are spearheading a revolution that is sweeping the world of missions. Their movement, Bufai Thang, or a handful of rice. Bufai Thang is a practice where each Mizo family puts aside a handful of rice every time they cook a meal and later gather it and offer it to the church. The church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work. Rice has been the staple food of the people of Mizoram, the main life of the people. You are giving what is basic, essential, fundamental to your life. You are sharing that with God. The handful of rice ministry started in Mizoram in 1910, that time, many people did not know the gospel. So the church thought that we need Bible women to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible women, they are locally supported women for evangelism. The practice of Bufaitam is meant for supporting those Bible women. This concept of Bufaitam became so popular throughout Mizoram over the years that giving was not limited to some individuals. The whole of Mizoram, rich or poor, young or old, everybody contributed to it. Ah, 
nan kan thamani athian he na tangmal som na tam tak kan dong sia e tu nai tam zo khi pek ka du ani katia kuta hetia ka tham mai kha ka du tok tolowa novin it is something which my mother has taught all of us right from when we were very young. And I feel like Bufai Tram is a piece of Christian service that anyone can do it. Today, 95% of 900,000 Mizos are Christians. A strong and vibrant church has emerged. Nineteen ten, one hundred nineteen years ago, they start this practice of bufai tam. Everybody, say that with me: bufai tam. A handful of rice, and God's people started to support God's work and these evangelists that were spreading the gospel to the rest of the province. And now, by God's grace, nine hundred thousand people in this Indian province. Ninety-five percent of them are Christian. That is amazing. And it began with this generosity. Uh, the one. Uh, quote that just sticks with me is this lady said, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. Wow. I mean, what a, what a generous perspective. That just blows me away. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Will, worship team, can you guys come up? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. In other words, when you and I, when we make the kingdom of God our priority for living, when we say this is our number one concern, it's God and his work and his kingdom, and it's getting the gospel, the good news message out to every single person on this planet, it's taking care of people in need, it's... It's uh, advancing Christian teaching. It's taking care of the kids. It's teaching those after-school Bible club kids. It's supporting the work in Zimbabwe. It's supporting those Niños de Mexico kids. You know, when we give to those kids, it's like I don't think about giving a dollar to Niños de Mexico and saying, oh, I'm going to give a dollar, and now I expect God to give me $2 back. You know, that, that attitude isn't the right attitude. You may get money back from God. You may get financial blessing back from God for your generosity, or you may not. But the point is, the real blessing is when you see that newsletter and you see the smile on those kids' face and you, see, and you know that, wow, by God's grace, they are being taken care of. They're growing up in a better world. They're getting food and education. They're going to be the chain of They're going to break the chain of poverty in their own generation as they grow up and be world changers, just like that little guy, Robbie, today. He's going to grow up to be a world changer. Maybe it's those Niños de Mexicos can do the same. And, and our giving is participatory in that. When we do that, when we seek God's kingdom above all else, that's when you and I, that's when we will shine our light. That's when the world around you will say, they will see your good works. And what did Jesus say when you do that? They're going to see your good works and they're going to praise or glorify your Father in heaven. Now, why should you make God's kingdom your first priority? Because God himself made you and me his priority in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, or 
Paul says this about Jesus, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. God uh, says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. The ultimate generous giver was Jesus Christ. He said no one loves the way he loves, the way he would lay down his life for us. He's our model. He's the person who changed the world by his own self-sacrifice. And he says when we practice that kind of generosity by seeking first his kingdom, we're going to be those kind of world changers too. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I don't know where you are spiritually with God right now. Maybe you're exploring the Christian faith. Maybe you're seeing Jesus in a new light, in a new way. To know that he's, he is the one who came to give his life for you. He came to sacrifice himself. God's word says, in, in fact, the apostle Peter says that Jesus himself carried your sins in his body when he went to the cross so that he would die to sin and live for righteousness. It's by Jesus' wounds that you have been healed. I don't know if you've responded to that message of love and grace. I don't know if you've responded to Jesus' call when he says, follow me. Follow me, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He said, you will find rest for your souls. If that's what you want, in your life, if you want to make a commitment to, to be a Christ follower today, whether you're here in this room or you're listening online, I ask you to pray with me right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize that, th that the ultimate gift from God to demonstrate his love for us is that when I'm still walking away from you, when I'm going my own way and I'm not living a life right, that Christ Jesus died for me. And Lord, I'm turning away from my sin today. I'm turning back toward you in faith and I'm putting my trust in the Lord Jesus and I receive him as my savior and as the Lord of my life today. And I'm gonna be his follower from now on until I draw my last breath by your love and by your grace. And Lord, for all of us who already are Jesus followers, I pray you'll enable us to excel in the grace of giving, to be the kind of givers that you are, to, to to pass those blessings you give us on to others so that your kingdom can grow and advance and there can be more people like Robbie who's giving his life to you and he's going to grow up to change his generation. God, help us to find other people like that and other families like that through our generosity and through our love that you put in our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.